0: Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films Discussion. Each month, our hosts Casey, Derek and Scott take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one
1: picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951
2: Down Place.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 49 of the 1951 Down Place podcast. I am your co host, Casey, here to wish you a happy Halloween on behalf of all of us here at 1951 Down Place. For Halloween this year, we decided we are going to sit down with a classic that is required viewing for the Halloween season. Because we figure around this time of the holiday, it's important to have some Christopher Lee in your life. And throw in with him some Rupert Davies, Barbara Ewing, Michael Ripper, and a whole lot of other classics in this Freddie Francis directed flick From 1968, that's right, we are covering Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Now, I know you're terrified, but do not worry. We will try and keep the scares manageable and at a dull roar. I shouldn't say dull, because that would make you think that our conversation is going to be dull, but it is far from it. So sit back, relax, Grab your favorite necklace of garlic, your wooden steak, and prepare as I'm joined by my own personal Abbott and Costello, Derek and Scott, as we sit back to discuss this classic from Hammer Films.
0: This is The Count, and I welcome you to 1951 Down Place, your home for Hammer Films Discussion. I must apologize for not being here to greet you personally, but I trust you found everything you needed. If you need anything, my servants Casey, Derek, or Scott can assist. Thank you. They say you can't keep a good man down. Well, it's also true you can't keep a bad man down either, especially when his name is Dracula and his driving passion is seducing beautiful women. The villagers' dread fear of the vampire begins when the body of a luscious young girl, her neck punctuated by two fang marks, is found hanging in the church belfry. Christopher Lee stars in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, Thursday at 8 on Channel 2.
2: I'd like to kick off this recording about Dracula has risen from the grave with this bit from the Christopher Lee Club Bulletin nineteen sixty-eight, in which he wrote And now to close my final tidbit of information, over the past few weeks, there's been a great deal of slightly hysterical and acrimonial discussion between me, my agent, James Carreras, Tony Hines and producer Ada Young, and director Freddie Francis about the next Dracula due to start on twenty second April next. If only I had a tape recorder of some of the conversations concerned, it would make hilarious listening. To sum up, they have committed themselves to the making of this film, but they do not appear to have. <laughs> but they do not appear to think that they are required to pay me my current market price, which I receive from all other film companies. The arguments that appeal to my better nature, etc., have been remarkable, but I have remained firm, and so has my agent. The decision is a very simple one. If they will pay me the salary I receive from all other companies for whom I work, and I like the script, I will play the part again. Bad back and all. If I do not play this role again, you will at least know why. You may be sure that as soon as the decision has been taken, I will let you know at once. The title, Dracula Has Risen From the Grave, has already filled me with considerable misgivings. I thought that would be a fun way to start our discussion of Dracula, History and from the grave, featuring the very wordy Christopher Lee. I'm Derek M. Cook, and of course, Casey Criswell and Scott
1: are on the line. Um, I need to talk to you uh, guys because I need to make sure that I'm getting paid as enough for this podcast as other podcasts are paying me.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Casey's
1: the one rolling in it. Come on now.
2: I want to get paid as much as Casey getting paid. (laughs) Casey wants to get paid too. (laughs) Maybe we need to get Christopher Lee's agent. There we go. Yeah, I want Lee money. Lee
1: money. (laughs) This is a first time watch for you, isn't it, Scott? This is a first time watch for me, yes.
2: But Casey and I, we've had this in front of our eyes before. Yes number of firsts in this film and i'm excited to get into it but do we want to catch up with everybody let everybody know that we're recording a little earlier than normal so if you've had any feedback that you've sent in since the last episode or two we just haven't gotten it yet because we're actually recording october's episode in september just because of scheduling so bear with us if you've sent something in we'll get to it later (laughs) someday (laughs) i'm excited I'm excited to talk about this one. I like it when we talk about the gothic horror here because that's what Hammer's known for. I mean, yeah, they've done a lot of different types of movies. They've done the psychological terror, the thriller, the comedies, uh, the Robin hood films, all these other types of movies. But when you think Hammer, you think Dracula, you think Frankenstein, the mummy, that's their bread and butter. At least that's what put them on the map. And because this is the month of Halloween, what better thing to get down with than Dracula, right? Sure. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>
3: Here we go. Thank you for your that recommendation.
2: <laughs> well, this movie was as Christopher Lee and his Fam Club newsletter indicated really didn't have a script uh, at first. They came up with the title and in typical Hammer fashion, started shopping it around before they had a script, before they had commitments from everybody That sort of thing. This movie, like I said, had a number of firsts. It's the first time Terrence Fisher didn't direct a Dracula film for Hammer. And does anybody know why? We've talked about it here on the show before. Well, he was hit by a
1: motorcycle and broke his leg.
2: So that delayed the start of the production and they brought in Freddie Francis, who we've talked about here on the show before as well. Another one of the mainstays of Hammer. We typically really like his work because he's got that cinematographer's eye. He started off
1: as a a cameraman.
2: Continued to be a cameraman. Became an Academy Award winner for Glory. In 1989?
1: Is that when they came out? I did not know that. I'm a big fan of that film. Could be wrong on that.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I like directors with eyes.
1: Especially two of them. It helps. I know.
3: They can see twice as much.
1: Yes. (laughs) Even though one of my favorite 3D movies was directed by a guy with only one eye.
3: I was wondering if you gotta work a house of wax
2: reference in there. I did. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I believe Freddie Francis also took over for one of the Frankenstein films when Fisher broke his leg. Is that does that sound about right? I think that's how it came up before on the show before. I believe so. This, despite being a movie of firsts, was also a movie of a couple of lasts. This was the last time Francis would direct for Hammer. He um wasn't a big fan of this one. Uh, he wanted to focus more on the love story in the film and referred to Dracula as the fly in the ointment. He really wanted to do something different. And I, th- I really appreciated some of the things that he did differently, which I'm sure we'll talk about in this film. What are some of the other firsts in this movie? It's the first time they did not shoot at Bray, they shot at Pinewood.
1: Yes, because uh, of the delay, Bray was no longer available.
2: And it's also the first time Veronica Carlson would
1: appear. In a Hammer film. This is her first time
2: in front of the camera for Hammer. She would, of course, do a couple of other movies for them as well. Become synonymous with a lot of gothic horror for Hammer, even though she only did a few.
1: And from everything I read, she seemed to be one of the only people in front of the camera that was really enthusiastic about being there.
2: Well, it's her first big, big movie, so I, I believe that. I have a retelling of how she got involved with Hammer... From the book, A New Heritage of Horror, the English Gothic Cinema, David Pyrie. Veronica Carlson was seen on a Sunday edition of a magazine or a newspaper called The Sunday Mirror. I'm not familiar with it, but she said, I was on the front of the Sunday mirror. Some photographs of me coming out of the water. Apparently, Jimmy Carreras saw one and I was called in. I had to have an audition, of course, but I was given a part in Dracula has risen to the grave. James Carreras was a lovely, affable man. He took me under his wing, which was a very comforting wing. I learned that it wasn't just me. He was a person who was magnanimous, generous, and thoughtful to everybody. Also, somewhere else I read that uh, the picture of her coming out of the water was in a bikini, which really caught everybody's attention, which is kind of typical for some of the hammer – I'll say hotties that were cast. Uh, Carolyn Monroe was seen in a liquor ad at one point wearing some
1: pretty revealing clothing. That's how she got brought in. Yeah, you were talking about the bikini shot in the um, exhaustive film filmography from Hammer Films by Tom Johnson and Deborah DeVecchio. It also said that uh, when Carrera saw the picture, he spat out his coffee and immediately yelled, I want her in my next film. <laughs> <laughs> Can you blame him? No, I can't blame him one one bit. <laughs>
2: Scott made a comment that she was the only person who seemed to be super enthusiastic about the movie. I think that translates on screen as well. She looks like she's having a blast.
1: Yes, she does. Yeah, you already touched a little bit on uh, Christopher Lee um, and his negotiations to be on the in the film. Uh, in that same Hammer Films exhaustive biography, there's a quote from uh, Christopher Lee saying that he got a call at home from Jimmy Carreras saying, You must do this film. On my knees, I beg you, do you know how many people you will keep from working at Hammer if you do not agree to do this film? Which Christopher Lee basically called a form of emotional blackmail.
2: This <laughs> is the one. Yeah, Lee's told that story before that he's been he was he was kind of forced into doing this kind of guilted into it. This is the one that he was guilted into because of, oh, you know, you're going to put people out of work, that sort of thing. So Lee tried to bring some different flair to the film. I mean, he did what he did. He's a professional, you know, you get him in front of the camera, put some things in him. he said to play Dracula, whether he likes it or not. He was concerned about a number of things, some money. Uh, he had a bad back. I didn't realize he had a bad back at this point in his life or his career. So he was concerned about some of the physical things he was being asked to do in this movie. He wasn't the same Christopher Lee that was in the first Dracula film. He even commented at one point that he was worried about having to pick up Veronica Carlson, that she was a whole 120 pounds. That can't be good for his back.
1: (laughs) I was trying to think of what physical things that he did. And that's the only physical thing I can think of is when they Mm -hmm. were climbing up the hill and he was carrying her.
3: He had to stand upright.
1: True. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie Powell did a lot of the stunt work and the heavy lifting,
2: but he was also injured at the time. I believe he might have had a bed back, too. (laughs) So you want to talk about any of the other players in the film, cast, crew, anybody that stood out for you guys?
1: I was going to say, if you want to speak about standing out, you got to talk about Xena a little bit. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Barbara Ewing, a New Zealand actress, brought in to play
2: one of two female leads, kind of the opposite to Veronica Carlson. Veronica Carlson is this good girl. Zena's not,
3: <laughs> or she's the, really, really good. <laughs> and her dumplings are boiling over. <laughs>
1: uh. yeah, she she plays a a barmaid in the in the pub in the film. And one of the quotes that I found really funny doing some research for this was in the Hammer film Legacy from Quatermass to Devil's Daughter by Wayne Kinsey. Uh huh. He's got some. Um, Comments that the British Film Board gave back when they first uh, read through the script, and one of their comments was: "Page thirty-eight, Zena's charms should not be too obvious as she leans over." <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: they missed the mark on that one. Yeah, her charms were on uh, on display.
2: This was an early film in her career as well, in terms of, of being in a movie. She did a lot of TV. She was in Torture Garden right before this, which I believe is an amicus film. But yeah, put her in a push-up bra, put her in a hammer film, and her dumplings are spilling over like <laughs> Casey said. That's a line from the movie. That's not us being yeah. men. The
3: dumplings are pointing over, Zena. It was a good
2: line, though. Oh, it's a great line. I loved it. I had forgotten about it when I sat down to watch it. and That, happened. that was my first laugh out <laughs> loud moment. I want to mention Carlson, Lee, Ewing. Uh, we've got Rupert Davies as Monsignor who becomes our one of our heroes, really. He was in Witchfinder General, which is a Tigon production, which is an amazing Vincent Price film.
1: Yeah. A film that I've not seen but want to. Oh, it's so good, man. It is so good.
2: He was also in Curse of the Crimson Altar with Christopher Lee and Boris Karloff. He got a little bit of a a classic connection there as well. I don't know if Davies did a lot of Hammer, though. I don't think he did.
1: Well, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned the other uh, patron saint of Hammer that's also in this film besides Christopher Lee.
2: Well, I I was working up to it. (laughs) You can't have a, a, a gothic Hammer film from the 60s and not have a particular guy turn up as an innkeeper or a policeman or a guard talking about our man, Michael Ripper.
1: Yay. as max the baker barkeep michael ripper's awesome <laughs> yes he he is really good in this film yeah <laughs> he's great
2: and you know what i said earlier that carlson seems to be the one who looks like she's having the most fun i think ripper's having a blast too
1: i i honestly believe he's the one that's having the most fun in this film yeah when you, when you made that comment earlier i immediately went to michael ripper because he just looked like you know, I don't care what, you know how grumpy everyone else is. I'm going to have fun. Yeah, I loved him. And I, don't, I loved his relationship with Paul, who is the Baker apprentice, works for him. Played by Barry Andrews.
2: I'm not necessarily a big fan of the character, Paul. And I think that has more to do with Barry Andrews acting. And that's not to say anything about Barry Andrews. He just seems to be working on a different wavelength for me than everybody else in the movie. Yeah. But I, I did like the relationship between him and Max. I like the relationship between almost everybody in this movie, even Dracula and the priest who doesn't even really have a name. Does he just priest? Yeah. 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 Played by Ewan Hooper, but not voiced by Ewan Hooper. No, he was dubbed and he wasn't told he was dubbed until just before the premiere. When Francis frantically tracked him down and said, Hey, by the way, um, we dubbed your voice. Hooper wasn't really happy about that. And, Every bit of information that I've got here, and I'm surrounded by Hammer Books right now, a couple of of these books and magazines say they've tried to talk to Hooper about his involvement in this movie, but he's always steadfastly either refused or just never even
1: responds. They say it might be because he was dubbed and he was kind of upset about it. Well, probably he was upset about not being told more than the fact that he was dubbed. Yeah. And I can totally understand that. I mean, if you guys went through and dubbed me on this podcast as another voice – And then I didn't hear it until I downloaded it. I would be upset.
2: Oh, you don't listen to the final edit, do you? Phew. You know, to go back to the first and last, this is also the last Dracula film, maybe even the last Hammer film that Bernard Robinson worked on.
1: Bernard Robinson is set decorator extraordinaire. And and some of the sets in this, especially the rooftop sets, are amazing. Are gorgeous. So even if we don't have Terrence Fisher, we've got Robinson
2: adding what we have come to know and love from the Gothic Hammer look. So good. I think we fit most of the cast and crew.
1: Am I missing anybody that you guys can think of? Now you covered everybody that, that I had wanted to talk about.
3: But what about connections with those people? Ah, ah. look at that. Ah. Ah, look at that.
1: <laughs> well, I do have a few. Uh, not as many as normal, but I do have some because there's not a big cast in this film. Well, we're going to start off with uh, my James Bond connections. And of course, the big one, <laughs> the big one, of course, is Da-da-da. Dracula, Sir Christopher Lee, which we've already talked about uh, him being the cousin to James Bond author Ian Fleming Uh, He played Scaramanga in 74's The Man with the Golden Gun. Now, interesting enough, one thing that I didn't talk about the last time we talked about Lee is um, Lee wasn't the first choice for Scaramanga. The role was actually offered to Jack Palance first, but he turned it down. Could have been a completely different movie and I would have lost a connection. Now, my uh, my other James Bond connection in this film is Barry Andrews, who played Paul in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. Andrews uh, also appears in 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, where he plays a crewman on the HMS Ranger, a British nuclear submarine which is swallowed by Carl Strongberg's giant oil tanker in the pre-title sequence.
3: Okay, I thought you were going to say swallowed by Jaws from <laughs> Moonraker. I might have guessed... Do you know him? Not socially. His name's Jaws. He
0: kills
1: people. Um, my Disney connections for this film, both um, we've covered. oh, well, well, the- well. oh, oh! Don't we have a Casino Royale connection here? What is your Casino Royale? Uh, that's not actually a canon James Bond film. Sometimes I mention it and sometimes I don't. So I, I didn't include it this time. But wh- what, what one do you want to make?
2: I thought pretty much everybody in the UK was in Casino Royale at one point. <laughs> Who was one of these people was in Casino Royale, weren't they? Was not- Carlson?
1: Um, Veronica Carlson uh, actually auditioned for a role in a James Bond film but never got one Really? Yes
3: And yet we had Denise Richards (laughs) Yes, exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, when I had a chance to to talk with her at the Monster Bash She mentioned that she did interview for one, audition for one, but didn't get it
2: I saw the title Casino Royale go across my eyes when I was reading up on this movie but I don't remember which performer was connected to it.
1: Then I figured I'm not the James Bond guy, and surely Scott (laughs) will bring it up. Nope, sorry. I I missed that one. Well, we'll call that an Easter egg for our listeners to find out. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to my Disney connections, they all revolve around Christopher Lee uh, that we talked about in the past. Uh, He played Dr. Victor Gannon in Return from Witch Mountain in 1978. In 2010, he was the voice of the Jabberwocky in the live-action version of Alice in Wonderland. And in 2012, a clip from 1958's Horror of Dracula is shown in Frankenweenie. Now, Sir Christopher Lee also has a Marvel connection as he appeared as Miguel in the 1979 TV film Captain America 2, Death Too Soon. Oh, God.
2: Have you seen that yet? Have you watched it? Yes, I have. Is it awesome? It is it is. everything? It, it's oh, everything. it's
1: awesome. It is so bad, but it's awesome.
2: <laughs> nice.
1: Uh, he also worked with Lucasfilms, playing Count Dooku in 2002's Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and Star Wars Episode 3, The Revenge of the Sith. Yes, of course, in Episode 3, uh, <laughs> Sir <laughs> Lee lost his head over. Now, moving on. Uh, well, <laughs> well. Well moving on to Doctor Who, courtesy of listener Don Falcos, who we really appreciate uh, doing the research for us. He states that Christopher Lee has a very tenuous Doctor Who connection for the great Christopher Lee. In Doctor Who novel titled The Wages of Sin, a character expects the bad guy to look suave and demonic like Christopher Lee. She is surprised to see that he looks completely different. I know it's a stretch, but hey, it's Christopher Lee. Now, Barry Andrews, who played Paul, played Scott in Nightmare of Eden. John D. Collins, who plays a student in the bar, played Taylor in Ark of Infinity. George Cooper, the landlord, played a cherub in The Smugglers. Norman Bacon, who played the little altar boy, uh, played Marsh Child in Full Circle. Frank George, who did the special effects for this film, played two different monoids in the arc. Peter Diamond, who was uh, an uncredited uh, stuntman on this film, who was also in A Challenge for Robin Hood, was a frequent actor in small, usually uncredited roles and was fight arranger for eight Doctor Who stories. And Eddie Powell, who was also a stuntman uncredited on Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, played Thompson in the Peter Cushing feature film Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 A.D., and was Tom Baker's stunt double for the TV story The Deadly Assassin. So thanks once again, Don, for uh, putting those together for us.
2: One of these days, I'm going to start watching Who.
3: One of these days. You're going to watch Who?
2: Who? What? I heard he's on first.
3: (laughs) No, that's Who. The Japanese all-star. Who? Right, Who.
2: Who? (laughs) Who was on first? (laughs) I've had way too much coffee. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) do either of you have the book Hammer Glamour? Yes. So if you look up Barbara Ewing in this book, you can see a picture of her with her dumplings boiling over. The main shot for her entry is a picture of her leaning over, licking her lips, trying to look all, I don't know, seductive. She says that when the photographer told her to do that to take this picture for this uh, for her publicity kit she just burst into tears that she was super super uncomfortable about it yet it turns up years later in this book also says here that she was a novelist which is kind of cool i don't know much more about her other than she gets burned up pretty
1: good in the movie well she was also supposed to have been chopped up but that didn't make it past the film board (laughs) go figure (laughs) And the original script, the priest was supposed to chop her up first with a uh, hatchet. Wow. Yeah, that's also in the uh, Hammer film legacy from Quatermass to The Devil's Daughter by Wayne Kinsey. You would
2: think at this point in Hammer's run, they would know better. That They would know that this stuff wouldn't fly.
1: I have a feeling that they probably did, but they figure they're going to throw everything in there and then they might be able to keep one or two things because they'll get rid of the more gory stuff they put in there.
2: That makes sense. If you look at it, this movie in some spots seems pretty tame to me. Yeah. I still think there's a lot of effective stuff in it. but There's, there's some moments that seem pretty tame. Like the nudity. Like there's none.
1: I was going to say, what version did you watch?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Veronica Carlson had to do a scene where her dress is coming off. And apparently that was an issue for her. It was a little difficult and uncomfortable for her. Uh, the censors had some issues because <gasps> she's not wearing a bra. It just seems very tame. Puritan almost in spots. Puritanical, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> if not, you just made it up. Yes.
2: I did read that Veronica Carlson got over the dress coming off scene by really working with Freddie Francis. And I know this isn't what she meant, but every place that I read her talking about this makes it sound like she acted the scene out with him first. I don't think that means that he took the place of Barry in the getting down to business scene. But the way it comes across over and over and over again makes me wonder if Freddie Francis was just a lucky guy that day.
1: It's good to be the director. Yeah, it's good to be the director.
2: I mean, if nothing else, Christopher Lee should have gotten that honor. He, his birthday happened while they were making this movie. <laughs> did
1: <laughs> did you read the story that uh, uh-huh. Barry Andrews told about that day? Yeah, you go for it, man. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, in the Hammer Films and Exhaustive Filmography. Barry Andrews told the story of Christopher Lee's birthday on set. He stated that the day we filmed the staking scene, it happened to be his birthday – and as he wrestled to pull the stake from his heart, the lights went out, and suddenly two beautiful maidens appeared bearing a cake with many candles on it. Happy birthday was sung by everyone on set, and slowly Lee began to rise from the coffin, blood dripping from his hands and chest, and he sank the stake into the center of the cake. He hissed, his fangs glinting in the light of the candles, suck off. Everyone roared before breaking into uncontrollable laughter. <laughs> What I love most about that story is that Lee hated
2: the staking bit. He hated that Dracula would be able to pull his own stake out. So I'm just trying to imagine, you know, grumpy Lee doing a scene and then all the lights (laughs) go off
1: and a moment of what the hell now? And then being (laughs) son, happy birthday. I was telling this story to Tracy this morning and her first reaction, what a waste of a perfectly good cake. (laughs) (laughs) Hammer had other reasons to celebrate as
2: well. This is when they got their Queen's Award for Industry, when this movie was in production. It's when they were honored with that. I believe they came to the set as well during one of the more gory scenes, one of the more bloody scenes, which I'm sure was a pleasure for everybody involved.
1: Yeah, it was during the death of Dracula at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. This is the scene they showed up at. Whoops.
0: <laughs> no coffin could ever hold him. No door can ever bar his way. He is back from the dead. Count Dracula is alive. Dracula has risen from the grave. Dracula, the most fearsome name in any language, the most feared being ever to haunt the living. a girl. Maria! Bring her to me. During the hours of darkness, she must never be left alone. Bring her to me! <laughs> Christopher Lee. Rupert Davis. Veronica Carlson. Hammer's new star discovery. Dracula's most beautiful victim. Dracula has risen from the grave. To resist him is useless. To rise against him is futile. To know him is eternal damnation. Dracula... Has risen from the grave.
1: Guys, ready to hear the plot of Dracula Has Risen from the Grave? Nah. Okay. You're going to hear it anyway, so. (laughs) The film opens in a small European village where we see a young boy riding his bike towards church. It turns out this lad is the altar boy, and he begins to ready the church for services. He makes his way over to the rope to ring the church bell when blood drips on his cheek from above. Looking up, he sees blood running down the length of the rope to the bell tower. He climbs up the stairs to the tower, and we, along with the town priest, hear him scream. The priest runs to help the boy, but the boy runs down the stairs and out of the church. The priest makes his way up the tower to discover the corpse of a young woman crammed inside the church bell with bite marks on her neck another victim of Count Dracula. Now, after the opening credits, we're told that a year has passed as we ride into town with the Monsignor, played by Rupert Davies. He makes his way into town, and we see the priest from the prologue, played by Ewan Hooper, ending his Sunday services and making his way to the local crowded pub. The Monsignor arrives at the church to find it empty, and the altar boy then leads him to the priest at the pub. The Monsignor berates the priest for not being in the church holding mass, when the priest says he's already said mass. The Monsignor then turns to the patrons of the bar and asks why they weren't in church, and they tell him they won't go because the shadow of the castle touches the church, the shadow of Dracula's castle. The Monsignor says the only way to get the flock back into the church is for him and the priest to travel to the castle to perform an exorcism, and the priest reluctantly agrees. Now, the next morning, the pair make the dangerous trek up the mountainside to the castle. And as a side, I would hate to have been the pizza delivery guy that had that castle on my route.
4: (laughs) Hello, Domino's. Yo, Domino's guy.
1: About three-fourths the way up, the priest says uh, that he can go no further because he's scared. The monsignor carrying a large cross from the church finishes the climb and starts the exorcism as the clouds gather and thunder and lightning begin. The priest is spooked and starts to leave, but he's been dipping into the sacrificial wine and his footing is not too good. He falls down the mountain and directly on the top of a frozen river where Dracula is encased. The priest's blood flows into the count's mouth, reviving him. And then the priest is enslaved by Dracula and the two head up to the castle where they find a giant cross on the door. Drac is enraged, and the priest tells him the Monsignor did it, and Drac now wants revenge.
2: <laughs> Not me, man. Not me. It wasn't
1: me. <laughs> the Monsignor has now left town and returned to Kleinensburg, rejoining his brother's wife, Anna, who's played by Marion Matthew, and her daughter, Maria Veronica Carlson. The Monsignor is tired and rests to be ready for Maria's birthday party that night. We now head over to the local bakery-cafe-pub boarding house in town, where we meet Roger Daughtry of The Who getting ready for his next show. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not right. We meet Paul. No,
2: Barry. no, but I want to see that movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not right. Uh, we meet Paul Barry Andrews uh, working in the bakery with the elder Max played by Michael Ripper. We find out that Paul is Maria's boyfriend and he's studying something to better himself and to leave town to tour with The Who. <laughs> At Maria's birthday party, Paul meets both Anna and the Monsignor. At first, the Monsignor likes Paul as Paul's being honest with him, but Paul goes a step too far when he admits he's an atheist.
0: I don't go to church, sir. You don't go to church? No, sir. You're not a Protestant, are you? No, sir. Thank heaven for that. I'm an atheist, sir. I beg your pardon? I'm an atheist, sir. You mean you deny the existence of God? I don't deny it. I just don't believe it. It's my own opinion, sir. You know who I am? Yes, sir. And you come here to my house speaking this blasphemy? You asked for my beliefs, sir, and I've given them. It was an honest answer, sir. You said you liked people to be honest. Don't be (gasps) impertinent.
1: Paul leaves the party and returns to the Bakery Cafe Pub boarding house to have his first schnapps and he ends up getting drunk. The barmaid Zena, played by Barbara Ewing, is all too eager to take care of Paul to the point that she takes him up to his room to get him ready for bed and kisses him. Before things can get too much farther, Maria arrives and the two women put Paul to bed just to sleep. It's not that kind of movie, unfortunately. Zena then leaves to walk back home where she sees the horse-drawn carriage of the priest in the woods. The carriage starts to chase after the girl and eventually corners her. Dracula then appears and enslaves the young barmaid. The next day, the priest shows up at the bakery cafe pub boarding house and asks Max if he knows if there's any rooms available. Max, not really wanting a priest above the bar, says no, but Zena quickly says the room next to Paul is available. Max reluctantly agrees and asks Paul to show the priest to his room. The priest has also somehow smuggled Dracula's coffin into the basement of the bakery-cafe-pub boarding house. Dracula then commands Xena to arrange for the Monsignor's niece, Maria, to come down to the basement. When Maria is told that Paul is downstairs waiting for her, she bounds down the stair in view of the entire bar. Once there, the Count starts to work his evil magic on her by staring into her eyes. Upstairs, Paul arrives and everyone wants to know where Maria went. Paul is confused because he didn't even know she was there, and they tell Paul to go downstairs. He does and starts to call out for his love. This breaks Dracula's spell before he can sink his teeth into her. After Paul and Maria leave, the Count is enraged and takes it out on Zena by killing her. He then orders the priest to dispose of the body, and he does so by tossing her body into the bakery's oven. The priest then discovers where Maria lives because Paul is worried about her. She became ill after her first encounter with Dracula, and uh, Paul can't visit her at her home, so he asks the priest to send a note. The priest then tells Dracula where she is, and he visits her that night. This time he's able to seal the deal and bite her neck.
3: I love how when they, when they do this, when they wake up next morning, and they find him after Dracula is uh, bitten him, especially in the Hammer films, their first reaction is, did you leave the window open? Perhaps she caught a chill. <laughs> she was lying here just like this. Oh, moving,
0: scarcely breathing. Oh, she's sick. She's
1: very sick. Was the window open? Yep, the next morning, Maria is even more sick than before, and the Monsignor sees the bite marks. At first, he doesn't say anything and is going to protect her himself. The next night, when Dracula returns to continue to feed on Maria, the Monsignor surprises the Count and fends him off with his cross. The Monsignor then chases the Count out the window, but is sucker-punched by the priest with a slab of concrete. All this wakes up Anna and scares off Dracula. The Monsignor is badly injured and tells Anna to get Paul to protect Maria. The Monsignor tells Paul that he must stay with Maria to protect her. The Monsignor then also explains how to fight a vampire. Paul then returns to his room to get his things and on the way back grabs the priest to help him. When the priest enters the house, the Monsignor sits up, panics, and dies. That night, it was the priest in Maria's room with the candlestick knocking out Paul. The priest then removes the garlic around Maria and opens the window, but the priest cannot remove the cross from Maria's chest. Paul awakens and grabs the priest who spills the beans and tells Paul that he cannot disobey Dracula as he is under his spell. The two make their way back to the bakery cafe pub boarding house to face off with Dracula. They open Drax's coffin and Paul plunges a stake into the Count's heart. The priest tells him that he needs to say a prayer to kill Dracula, but Paul, being an atheist, cannot do it. Dracula survives because of this rule that only applies to this movie, and kidnaps Maria and takes her back to his castle. <laughs> Should I keep going? Do We want to go all the way to the end.
2: I, I want to comment on the final scene, but maybe this is a good like what happens next.
3: <laughs> what do you think, Casey? Yeah, I'm fine with, I'm fine with whatever. I mean, it's
1: <laughs> it, it is an old, old movie. As shit.
3: Yeah, it's an old shit. So
1: <laughs> I'm fine with Whatever. I mean, whatever. All right. So after a long climb up the mountain to the castle, the count orders Maria to remove the large cross from the door, the one the Monsignor had placed earlier in the film. She does so and tosses it over the railing where it falls a few hundred feet and lands perfectly into the ground point up. Paul then makes his way to the castle and yells out for Maria. This breaks the count's spell over her again, and the count and Paul hug. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, they wrestle a little bit. Then the count then (laughs) falls over the railing and is impaled on the cross. The priest then shows up in the nick of time to say the prayer that Paul couldn't say earlier and the Count dies for good. No, there is another Dracula film. Credits then roll. So that in a nutshell is Dracula has risen from the grave.
2: Overall thoughts, what do you guys think? It was a movie. <laughs> 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 wow, Casey.
3: It's not the greatest of the of the Hammer Dracula flicks by far. Uh, we didn't get enough of Christopher Lee hamming it up. We know why. So we didn't get to hear, see enough of Christopher Lee doing the Dracula thing that we've all come to know and love, but we got a little bit. There's parts of this movie that were pretty solid, some good storytelling attempts, things like that, some great acting. But overall, it was just it felt a little empty compared to the earlier Dracula films. But at least it's not the Dracula film where Christopher Lee decided to show up and not talk at all.
1: The first reaction I have from this film, and it's a big one, is missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. They set up the Paul is an atheist, but they barely act upon that. And that's always been one of the big stalwarts of how do you fight Dracula is a cross, and I think that was a wasted opportunity. They should have delved more into his struggling, Paul's struggling with, can I use a cross? Will that work? And they didn't even show him trying to even wield a cross at any point. Yeah. And then they bring in this new rule of once you stake Dracula, you have to say a prayer, which in previous Dracula films, Hammer Dracula films, once you stake the vampire they 're done there there's never been this you have to say this prayer at the same time is the only time that they even remotely bring back his atheism and I think that would have been a much more interesting debate uh, that they could have brought into this movie you know, the lore of a vampire versus Christianity, and what do you do if you are an atheist well, not pray. <laughs>
2: I think Hammer was still working on working out some of the kinks of their vampire lore because numerous times in this movie, Dracula sees his reflection. You can see his reflection. Oh,
1: yeah. The, the water at the beginning.
2: Yeah. It's, it's very obvious. They're not even trying to hide it. It's like they didn't even bother. <coughs> I agree with Scott, though. It would have been an interesting uh, story. And again, I think you say missed opportunity. I say a struggle between making this a Dracula movie and something else. That I agree when Francis says Dracula's the fly in the ointment, he just kind of gets in the way. How interesting would it have been to spend more time yeah. with Paul and learning more about that relationship? I mean, yeah, you've got to have something to butt that atheism up against.
3: It really kind of makes this movie feel like a uh, cash in, a money making opportunity. It worked. Yeah. Oh, this yeah.
2: Made a ton of money. Some people are saying, some sources say this was the most profitable Hammer film ever. Uh, it brought in bank. Oh. Uh, some of that might have been the movie poster, though. <laughs> which is, is it Carlson on the movie
1: poster? It's a woman. With it's a woman. You don't see her face. Very large dumplings. Yes. But what, what throws me, that movie poster, I know which one you're talking about, what throws me out of a gothic horror film is the Band-Aids.
2: You know, yeah. the promotional material for this movie does have that kind of lighthearted, goofy... Approach, And since I'm the one doing the edit this month, you'll have heard like a radio ad that is very silly regarding this movie. It just had this weird kind of, ha-ha, we're making a Dracula movie, ha-ha-ha, you know, kind of approach. Dracula
0: has risen from the grave. You just can't keep a good man down.
1: This picture has been rated. Yeah, eight. the poster says Dracula has risen from the grave. And then in parentheses, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, it was the band-aids that really threw me off when I saw this film, because I was thinking, and, and I know we haven't covered it, but before I watched it, all of seeing was that poster. I thought this was the one that happened in modern times.
2: Oh, like 80, 70,
1: 1972 or. Right. Satanic I thought Christ. it was another one that was going to happen in modern times because of the band-aids.
3: Right. I can see that. Yeah. That said, I think it makes a very stylish poster. If sure. For a, a modern sensibility. I think that's one of Hammer's better ones. I'm
2: pretty much in line with Scott's thoughts here. And, and Casey's. I think this movie does have that cash grab kind of feel. That's not to say I didn't enjoy a lot of it. I enjoyed the heck out of a lot of this movie. Yeah. I think that the characters' relationships really sing everybody seems like they've got a good pattern down the characters while some of the performances may not have been the best or written the best their relationships and the way they interact with each other makes me smile anytime somebody talks to max i'm like oh yeah it's just max good old max you know
0: (laughs) oh good good making ourselves pretty are we (laughs) you're going to meet her man for the first time tonight aren't you now, you take a good look at her mama, my boy, because that's exactly what your girl's going to look like after you've married her. That is, if her mama lets you marry her. And why shouldn't she? Why shouldn't she? So why should she? What are you? Young, hardworking, good-looking, abstemious. You're a second-class pastry cook. And if you work hard, you may in time become a first-class pastry cook. And who'll want to marry you then? Up every morning before dawn. Ah, that's not for me, Max. No? No. I'm ambitious.
2: Oh, I see. Those books of yours, eh? Uh, I did appreciate the relationship between the Monsignor and Maria's mother. I thought that was kind of heartwarming and charming. And when I say relationship, I don't mean Monsignor's doing something Monsignor shouldn't be doing.
1: Yeah, Anna was the Monsignor's brother's widow. Mm -hmm. And she has kind of taken over the house
2: wife role without being a wife. She actually makes a comment about being a wife and Monsignor shoots her a look like huh? <laughs> <laughs> "Who? Oh no, not like that. And put these slippers on.
0: You're as good as a wife to me, Anna. Oh, not quite, eh, Ernst? I shouldn't joke about such things to you, I know.
2: I really liked that. Even somebody like Zena, who clearly is very familiar with
1: everybody in the movie. <laughs> 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 I liked her relationship with everybody and I liked her until she turned. When she turned, I didn't like her. Oh, she was so she was too eager. Yeah, she was way too eager. She's like
2: she wanted to go all the way, and on their first date, and Dracula's just like first base lady. Come on.
1: <laughs> yeah, most of the problems that that I have with this film, unfortunately, revolve around Dracula, and I kind of agree with the, you know the comment that Freddie Francis made that he's kind of a fly in the ointment. I mean, I don't buy really his whole motivation for going after the Monsignor. And all he did was change the locks on the castle. (laughs) (laughs) And he swears revenge on the Monsignor and his entire family. You know, Dracula could have easily, at the beginning of the film, he had the control of the priest. He could have had the priest throw the cross off the front of the building and we're done. I mean, that's basically what he tells uh, Maria to do at the end of the film. Why couldn't he have told the priest to do it?
2: Dracula's motivations are not as epic and world spanning as somebody like dracula should have it's very petty it's very well let's go get revenge in fact at one point this movie was called dracula's revenge in the pre-production stage and it just seems i don't know that's what you put in a slasher movie that's not what you put in a dracula film yeah dracula is bigger than
1: that because they've already established that uh, basically dracula lives in that little town and he torments that little town So he tells the priest to take the cross off the door. He sets up shop and starts tormenting the little town again. The Monsignor would be a distant memory after he left to go back to Kleinensburg.
2: That said. And I know Christopher Lee kind of poo poos the dialogue in this movie too, even though he says it's a little bit better than the last one he did. I do like the dialogue. I like the.
0: Who has done this thing? (laughs) Who has done this thing?
2: Moments. I know it's a silly line, but I like that moment when he looks at the cross on the door and says that. That gave me some chills because Lee delivers it so well. And the way he says this thing, it's like he can't even bring himself to address what it really is a cross on his doorstep, you know, just this thing. I like that moment. It was very animalistic.
1: Yeah. And I agree. I did like that as well. I like the way the movie looks. Oh, the movie looks gorgeous.
2: Yeah. I think every time Dracula turns up on
1: screen, it's ooh, it's good. And, of course, his eyes are amazing again. Oh, he hated those contacts. Oh, I would imagine so because they looked painful.
2: But I think they're some of the best contacts we've seen so far. I think his eyes look amazing in that. But the, I, I just keep going back to the color. Every time you see Dracula on screen, there's this nice. I mean, they busted out the filters, you know, the amber filters, the red, some greens here and there. And this is a guy who's colorblind talking about how awesome the color looks. So. <laughs> you, you know it's good, right? Yep. Even though he looks good in pretty much every scene, there are just so many moments where Dracula does these pedestrian things. Like, he's driving his own coach. Why, why is he driving his own coach? He's Dracula! He's got people who do that for him, right?
3: <laughs> Dracula don't fly, coach. That's right.
1: Yeah, The the funny thing about that scene when I was watching it, you see Dracula driving the coach and he stops and Veronica Carlson is sitting next to him. The two of them get off the coach and start walking up the mountain and they get a few hundred yards away from the coach. And then all of a sudden the coach starts going away. And I'm like, what did I miss? I didn't see anybody getting back up on the driver's seat, but then, so I rewound it and watched it again. And the priest gets out of the back and climbs back up onto the coach. I just thought it started wandering away. Want <laughs> <laughs> to talk about the ending. <laughs> That cross. That cross that just happens to perfectly land in everything.
2: Well, it, it's going to do that when you shoot the scene in
1: reverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was pretty obvious. Yeah, it was very obvious,
2: especially now. I mean, we've seen that that gag done so many times.
1: And, and what's bad, I get foreshadowing in a movie, but that was blatant foreshadowing. As oh, soon yeah. as that happened... You knew how this movie was going to end.
3: Yeah. I like the imagery of the cross, though, especially at the beginning of the Monsignor is there convincing the priest that, you know, he's stupid for being afraid of the castle. You need to go up there and you need to do the exorcism just to make the the citizens happy. We're going to leave first thing in the morning. And then you see him blessing the cross and he straps it to his back. It gives him kind of a warrior vibe, which I thought was kind of cool.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did, too. I I got that warrior vibe, too, because I was thinking, yeah, he's going out for battle. And he is armed and ready to go. And it's pretty cool.
2: It's a tough little Monsignor, too. I mean, that that had to have been a heavy cross. Or at least it would have been if it wasn't really made out of wood. But, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Strapping up for battle. What's the priest need? Just the cross. That's it.
3: Yeah. He's ready to roll. And it's kind of cool, too, because then you see that once we think about it and we start talking about it. And then you get the uh, other angle, which is kind of a missed opportunity. But the other angle with the atheism and stuff like that. So you got him that he's going into battle against this great evil. And he is perfectly calm because he's just got – he has faith, and he doesn't need any more than faith in that cross, whereas everybody else is kind of going crazy. It's kind of a, it's a cool counterpoint if you want to read deep into it.
1: Yeah. Now, can we get to the the problem I have with this film, the big problem? <laughs> oh, no. And it's Paul. I was going to say there's yeah. no Peter Cushing. Well, that is the huge problem of the film. But now We've been going for almost an hour, <laughs> and it's the first time we brought up the master. <laughs> but it's Paul. I don't like this character.
2: No. I like his relationships with people, but as a guy,
1: I just – I wouldn't want to hang out with him. He seems kind of dull and whiny. Mm -mm. I got – and this is going to sound weird, but at the very beginning, it's just this scene where he's talking with Max and wanting to leave and everything. I almost got sort of a Luke Skywalker New Hope vibe off of him. Then he was kind of whiny and is like – I. Bakery isn't where I want to be. I want to go off and do something else. But they never really go into what he wants to do. I mean, if he wanted to go to Tashi Station to get power converters or something. I was going
2: to say something about
3: Tashi Station.
2: (laughs) But I want to go to Tashi Station to get some power converters.
3: (laughs) I just want to dance. What? (laughs) I just want to dance.
1: I just want to go on tour with the Who. I mean, (laughs) I wish they would have. And and how I, I, I could have seen them expand this atheism debate type thing is if they would have said what he was studying and then have some iconography from that that he believes in. And maybe that would have warded off Dracula because he believes in it.
3: Yeah, that it would w- go back to the whole faith thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, this isn't the first time that I've come across this in a vampire story. The symbol means nothing unless you believe in it. But the other place that I saw it was in a 1980s X Men comic book. <laughs> uh, I don't know which I saw first that in the comic or this movie when I first started watching Hammer films. But it just seems so flimsy to throw in here and not really address. Yes. I guess there's that gag in is it Fearless Vampire Killer or is it one of the other movies where they try to use a cross against a vampire, but the vampire's like, hey, I was Jewish in real life. That doesn't mean anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, I would like to know a little bit more about Paul. What's he going to school for? What does he want to be? What is he studying? And why does he hang out with the people in the bar who clearly don't have his best interests at heart? They keep razzing him and they keep trying to mess up his times to meet up with Maria by tricking him into doing the
1: bar Who invented that weird drinking game with a broom and a glass of beer on the ceiling? Uh,
2: I saw (laughs) that. I was like, I've seen way too many YouTube videos to know how this is going (laughs) to (laughs) end. I have the lyrics for the song. They're singing in the bar. You want me to sing it?
1: Go for it. Ooh,
2: yeah, I'm not going to sing. It. I'm not going to sing. Drink up until the jars are empty, lads. The night is young and so are we. Drink up and fill your jars again, my lads. To the maidens who are fair and free. Here's to the best man who can drink the most of us. There will be a maiden waiting in his bed. There's a maiden waiting there for me. There's a fat one and a leaner one. Either one of them is fun in bed. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
4: Uh-huh.
3: <laughs> now. Paul was pretty bland and they I mean I know he's written that way, but he's pretty bland throughout the thing. The I liked the uh, back and forth between him and the Monsignor when he first met him.
2: Yes. That was, that a, was good a very scene. good scene. It's those relationships again. He's yeah. Monsignor, that whole dinner is great.
3: Yeah, and how the Monsignor is like, Oh, you kid you know, at first he's asking why he smells like beer, and then he's kinda like, Oh, you kids, you're crazy. Doing <laughs> kids things.
1: <laughs> well, I liked how the Monsignor appreciated his honesty. Because yeah. Paul was telling him everything honestly, until you know, of course, he didn't like the atheism comment. But agreed, I like that relationship. But you also, uh, Derek, you said that you enjoy the other relationships in this film. There's one that I never buy in this film. Which one's that? Paul and Maria from Paul's point of view. I get Maria's in love with Paul. I don't get Paul's in love with Maria. Hmm. I I okay. believe that Paul could have spent time with Xena if the um, opportunity really presented itself and and he wasn't drunk, you know, especially in that scene where, you know, the the bar scene that we talked about earlier, and he's kind of flirting back and forth with her. I got the impression that he's still young and he still wants to play the field a little bit. Are Hmm. you projecting a little bit, Scott? Maybe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted
1: him to play the field, but no, I didn't, I didn't buy that. He was totally in love with her at the beginning of the film. To the point that he would have done everything that he does in the, in the rest of the film to to help her survive. It, it wasn't set up strong enough for me. I
2: believe that he's a good person, but yeah, I can see that. I see where you're coming from. I love him and Max, though. So. Not that oh, he was yeah. in love with
1: Max, but yeah. I love him. <laughs> no, the interaction between the two of them is great. And the interaction between Anna, Maria's mom, and the Monsignor is really good.
2: We've been commenting on the atheism and how there could have been a... An interesting story journey there. What did you think of the priest's role in this, where he's clearly an inadequate priest, an inadequate man at the beginning of the movie, and he then goes even darker before kind of turning it around a little bit at the end? What did you think about his journey and his performance, his place in the story?
3: Say That dude didn't seem right from the beginning because the dude was gray. He looked like he was under some kind of influence by the time the Monsignor first met him, which, I mean, plays to the fear angle and things like that, so...
1: Well, I got the impression that there at the beginning, he'd given up. He'd given up on the town. He'd given up on his flock. He would just do his mass even though no one showed up, and it didn't matter to him, and he was going to go drink, which made him the perfect person for Dracula to take over because he'd already given up on life. And
2: I thought he played that well was a Renfield stand and he was the one that Dracula would kind of use as his servant during the day, that sort of thing. I felt like out of everybody in the cast, he was the most wet blanket of them all because he was always so down and dour and mm-hmm.
1: you know depressed. And, but then again, that made him the perfect person mm-hmm. for Dracula to take over and the sure. easiest one for him to take over.
2: And somehow able to sneak the coffin into the bakery, like yeah. you said. <laughs> that... Did I miss something there when I was watching this movie? Did I blink too long? How did the coffin end up in the bakery? I don't remember. I have the same
1: question. I don't know.
2: And how does Max not know there's a vampire coffin in his basement?
1: Because there's like a doorway between where the coffin is and where the actual bakery part of the basement is. You would think one time when he was down there working on his rolls, Max would have seen the coffin in the other room. There wasn't a door on it. On the door,
2: maybe that was part of Dracula's power, clouding the m- the mind of. Uh, I don't know.
1: Maybe he's just really
3: focused on his buns. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it could have been worse. I could have gone with the cough drop joke about the vampire coughing.
2: Oh, I-, I thought you were going to mention uh, Zena's dumplings again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm keeping those to myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the music in the movie. Again, it's James Bernard. It's slightly different. He wanted it to be even more different than what you eventually hear, but Ada Young, the producer, said it was a little too discordant at first. He had to dial that back a little bit. But I like the score. I like the way it looks. I like it overall, but I do think that in terms of all the Dracula movies we've seen so far, it's it's no horror of Dracula, but
1: what really is. Well, my biggest regret of this film, my, my the one person that I blame the most problems on this film, is the motorcycle rider because I would love to have seen the same stacked deck of everything that was here what Terrence Fisher would have done in a more fairy tale quality of the film ah okay I would love to have seen that I was wondering where you were going with that motorcycle (laughs) did I miss that too did he put the coffin in the bakery (laughs) he's the the one that brought the (laughs) band-aids oh okay okay But no, I would like to have seen what the original director would have done.
2: Lee seems to prefer this to what Terrence Fisher was doing. He seems to think this was better somehow. That Terrence Fisher was not as, I don't know. I don't know if I, I agree with you, Scott. I think Terrence Fisher is a master. And how fascinating this would have been to have seen through Terrence Fisher's eyes. I mean, you would have lost some of that lighting. Which I think is odd because I think Lee would have gotten a more prominent role. I mean, I'm glad we got to it, though. I mean, I, I really do enjoy the Dracula movies. Even some of the worst ones <laughs> I still enjoy. Of the ones we've seen so far, we've seen what? Horror of Dracula, Bride of Dracula. Prince of Darkness was the third one. Is that right? I believe so. And then this one is the
1: fourth?
3: And then Dracula dead and loving it. And- God <laughs> damn it, Jesus. <geez. laughs>
1: <laughs> I think the only one we have left is AD 72. No, don't we have?
2: We have Scars of Dracula.
1: Oh, okay. uh,
2: AD 72, and then Satanic Rites. So we're more than halfway through at this point. Of the four, technically, okay, let's say of the three, because Brides of Dracula doesn't heavily. You hear that, Stephen D. Sullivan? Not
1: including it. Uh, (laughs) Of the three we've seen so far, how would you rank them? Well, the first one would be my number one, Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not even close. But compared to Prince of Darkness, where do you put this one? Now, Prince of Darkness—that's the one that was almost a slasher film.
2: That's the one where he didn't talk. That's the one where he didn't yeah. talk. I like the it. one that has the big controversy: that did was there a dialogue written for Dracula or not? You know, Lee says there was, but other people say
1: there wasn't. I like this one better than that one.
3: Yeah, I like this one better than that one too.
1: Okay, and I like this that one better than Brides, whether it's technically a Dracula film or not.
3: I don't know. I think I like Brides better than that one for sure. But I think I like, like Brides Darkest? better than this one.
2: Well, Brides has Cushing. True. Yes. And then Cushing carries a lot on his shoulders in that one. Well, that's not surprising considering everything (laughs) else. (laughs) 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 Well, I agree with you both. I do like this one better than Prince of Darkness. A lot. Uh, I do respond well to that pre-slasher aesthetic, even though I'm not really into modern slasher movies anymore. Modern going back to like the 80s or whatever. But I still think this one is a, a superior film in terms of look. And relationships and just dracula has dialogue and i i enjoy the dialogue even though lee didn't seem to like it as much he liked it better than what he was supposed to say in prince of darkness where he's saying things like i am the apocalypse which i would love to hear lee say i would love to have that as a sound clip i'd make that my ringtone <laughs> but <laughs> yeah i do prefer this one to prince of darkness and i don't know if that's sacrilegious or not but and it's unfortunate I mean, it's fortunate that we're able to record this early because it gives me an opportunity to edit. However, we are recording this before October 6th, which is when a
1: Blu-ray version of this comes out. That is true. uh, Amazon currently has this listed for $14.99 for the Blu-ray. Who's got it pre-ordered? I do, I do. (laughs) Well, there's also the option of the Horror Classics Volume 1 Blu-ray that not only has... Dracula has risen from the grave, has tasted the blood of Dracula, Frankenstein must be destroyed, and The Mummy all on Mm -hmm. Blu-ray. And that nine forty six, and it's also going to release on October 6th.
2: Yeah, we're going to get spoiled here shortly, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Or by the time you've heard this. Yeah, October was a heavy month for horror movie fans,
1: classic monster movie fans. There's a lot coming out. Now, if you don't want or don't have Blu-ray, I mean, there's out right now, as the point we're recording this... Uh, there's two different uh, f- collections that have Dracula Has Risen from the Grave on on uh, DVD. There's four film favorites, Dracula, which has Horror of Dracula, Taste the Blood of Dracula, Dracula 72 AD, and Dracula Has Risen from the Grave. And that right now is at the bargain price of $7.80 on Amazon. Ooh. Or you can get TCM's greatest classic film collection, Hammer Horror, which has horror of Dracula. Dracula has risen from the grave. The curse of Frankenstein and Frankenstein must be destroyed for $15 and 49 cents. Quite a few options there.
2: Yeah. You can get your hands on it. Is wasn't Warner brothers the distributor on this Warner brothers and seven arts. Yes. Warner
1: brothers and seven arts. I, I was thinking seven arts, but yeah, yeah. They were very, very happy with how this one did,
2: and we keep running into the same problem with the Hammer films because they got into bed with so because they were the Xena of film production companies, and they got into the bed with very, very many distributors. You're never going to find that Dracula complete set, but it sounds like you can get pretty darn close with some of these collections.
1: That is true. So will this film uh, be in either of your top fives? Nope. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> not to say that that it's bad it's just not good enough to shake anything up
2: if i were doing a top five list of hammer dracula movies it would be on there because there's only like seven movies anyway <laughs> uh, that's fair <laughs> but no it would
1: not be on its own standalone because looking at our current top fives um, casey doesn't have a dracula film on his top five list He's not vampire. Vampires, though. Yes, but that's not a Dracula film.
3: They could be cousins.
1: (laughs) Kissing cousins. (laughs) Uh, Derek (laughs) does have the Brides of Dracula in his number one spot.
2: I I love Brides of Dracula. Screw you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I have Horror of Dracula in my number two spot. No, Casey has a lot of vampires on his list. He just doesn't have a Dracula film. He's got Twins of Evil, Vampire Circus. (laughs) Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, The Vampire Lovers. That's his five through two. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yep.
3: (laughs) Looking at that, if you look deep into my top five list, you might find what I actually love about Hammer films (laughs) dumplings. Yes, dumplings. (laughs) My dumplings boileth over.
2: I do enjoy the movie, and I am going to go back and watch again. I can't wait for the Blu-ray. Amazon does not list any special features right now, but that doesn't... If it's a bare bones, that's going to be disappointing as hell. Excuse me, Blu-ray.com doesn't have
1: anything either. We should offer up this podcast to be as an alternate audio track.
2: There you go. Yeah! It might be fun to do a 1951 downplace commentary track for something. We could do it for... Uh, you know what I'm going to say? Man About the House. I was going to say four-sided triangle, but (laughs) we could do one of the sea movies. Damn
1: it. Damn it. I'm sorry. (laughs) I knew that was coming. I was just waiting.
2: (laughs) That might be fun.
1: But, uh, yeah, I'm looking
2: forward to the Blu-ray. I'm glad we covered this one, though, guys. I know it's not our favorite, and I know we had some issues, but I really did get this sense of fun. You know, it's October when people hear this. And I know October for horror fans specifically, uh, you know, that's when we really watch our horror movies. We watch horror movies all the time. But October is when we sit down and do the movie marathons. We're always looking for the new stuff to come out, stuff we've never seen before, that sort of thing. And as somebody who has, as I've gotten older and I've gotten more into the classic stuff, I always look for horror films that have a sense of fun to them. And I think I would count this on that list if I were to put together a list of fun Vampire movies from Hammer, this would be on there because it's got that sense of there's this playfulness. And again, it's that relationships, and it really looks like they're having fun in the movie. I would probably put this on that kind of a list.
1: I'm glad that I watched it. I don't think I'll be revisiting it anytime soon. It It's kind of a middle of the road film for me. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't overly. In, you know, it's not my favorite film of all time either. It's sort of in the middle.
3: Yeah, I could agree to that.
2: You know, I have been looking forward to getting to the other Dracula films, but now I'm starting to dread getting to Scars of Dracula because I don't remember it being very good. This may have been the high-water mark in terms of sequels in the Gothic
1: era, but we'll get to that. Now, I wouldn't say that because I've really enjoyed a couple of the sequels to the Frankenstein films.
2: Well, no, I meant the vampire stuff, the Dracula oh, Okay, You stuff. said so the Gothic, Dracula. so. Yeah, yeah the, the Gothic Dracula era because the last two Draculas are not. They're in the 70s. Which I love for completely different and probably inappropriate reasons.
1: Being a fan of mst 3 I'm actually sort of looking forward to those.
2: Oh, no. They're not that bad. (laughs) The jury will decide. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But we're not doing any of those Dracula films next. Next is Scott's birthday pick, Phantom Ship, going back to the 30s with Bela Lugosi.
1: only time you did a Hammer film. That's going to be a blast. I'm looking forward to, the, to to watching that one again. That I got to see that at Monster Bash a few, about a year ago at this time, and really enjoyed it. Uh, Tracy also watched it, enjoyed it. Something different. It's basically the story of the Mary Celeste. It should be something different for us here. And speaking of something different, we're going to go away from the movies in December. actually going to go to the small screen with Derek's birthday pick as he's going to uh, have us sit around the boob tube and watch the house that bled to death. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, rounding out our announced schedule is uh, January's The Pirates of Blood River. Arg. <laughs> <laughs> Lee's in that one, isn't he? I believe so.
2: Lee, Lee did a pirate movie or two for Hammer. Yep. I mean, as <laughs> He's in that with Kerwin Matthews. Kerwin Matthews is... Sinbad and he's awesome (laughs) he was also an Octoman which is terrible but I love it so
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oliver Reed is also in it Andrew Kerr Michael Ripper
2: so a bunch of our favorites just got together to go play pirate
1: (laughs) yay Yay. (laughs) that'll be great
2: and then maybe in January we'll talk a little bit more about more of what's coming up in 2016 because there's still lots of hammer to get to
1: yep and I still need to know what Casey wants to do for his birthday pick in February
2: Have we hit all the vampire movies outside of the Draculas? We haven't done Dead and Loving It yet. (sighs) Damn it! (laughs) There's Kiss of the Vampire. That's Hammer and not part of the Dracula run.
3: Yeah, I haven't decided what we're going to do yet, so we'll see. i got to find something interesting and different. Well, come back for that. Stay
1: tuned to 1951downplace.com
2: for updates. And if you have (laughs) any
1: suggestions for Casey... You can reach us at area code seven six five two zero three nineteen fifty one 1951 and leave us a voicemail message. Uh, just a friendly reminder that it's a Google voice number, and it will cut you off at three minutes with no warning. Remember
2: when it took me forever to realize that you had chosen the number and put 1951 <laughs> at the end, and it just dawned on me in mid-recording, and I looked like an idiot? Yes. <laughs> uh, that was awesome. <sighs>
1: Now, if you have a a little more to say, uh, you can record your own MP3 or write up an email and send it to podcast at 1951downplace.com. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a group and a page. Just do a quick search for 1951 Downplace there. Or you can check out our homepage, which you can find at 1951downplace.com and uh, our Twitter of twitter.com slash 1951 down place.
2: We're all over. We're all over the internet. We're like Xena. We're all over.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Our dumplings are bluffing over.
2: <laughs> That's right. This was fun. I had fun with this one. I think this is probably and maybe it's because the movie had this fun kind of relationship vibe going with everybody. I had fun doing this recording with you guys. More fun than I've had in a while. And that's not to say that you guys sucked, but uh, I, I've, had, I've struggled with some of the movie choices lately. So this has been good.
3: <laughs> but you have sucked for a while.
2: Yeah, but, but you have sucked for a while and not in a good way. I don't know. This one, <laughs> <laughs> suck off, all right? <laughs> no, just I'm, I've had fun with this one. So thanks, guys. If you need more of us in your ear holes, Scott can be found at DisneyIndiana.com. Casey can be found at bloodygoodhorror.com, cinemafromage.com. And again, he's like Cena, he's all over the place. And then, of course, yes. I'm over at monsterkidradio.net,
1: which has gone downhill ever since Casey was on a guest on there. <laughs> yep. That's okay.
3: You want to hear me on there again for another five years. <laughs>
2: well,
1: I want to keep giving, I want to get you back on. But every
2: time I look at my calendar, it's like, well, that'd be, oh, Scott's going to be on. Well, that'd be a good weekend. <laughs> oh, I'm already scheduled Scott.
3: Yeah, we see who your favorites are. <laughs>
2: You're going to make
1: me tell you which one is the prettier one, right?
3: <laughs> yes, right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, he's going to say Tracy, so.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> who's the Xena and who's the Maria? That's what I want. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: I don't know, Casey. I guess we need to go compare dumplings.
0: <laughs> ah. <laughs>
3: Scaramanga, Scaramanga, will you do the fandango? <laughs> what just
1: happened? <laughs> Another victim of Count Dracula.
2: <coughs>
1: Sorry about that. I can
2: tell if that was for effect. Count Dracula.
3: <laughs> Did you feel a bit of a bite in your throat, Scott? <laughs> Yes, just a little bit.
2: I mean it guys this one was fun for me I know it wasn't our favorite movie but I hope the vibe rubbed off on you guys a little bit it was enjoyable for you because I got a lot out of it
1: Something I had fun writing the blot the summary for this
2: one so I, I may need to go change my pants <laughs>
3: <laughs> cool well that was fun dudes I hate to go take a shower now
0: Band-aid, cause band-aid stuck on me. Cause they hold that tight and they cling so be sad. Announcing an improved stay-on-adhesive on Band-Aid brand adhesive bandages from Johnson & Johnson. You'll notice the difference because it stays on you better than anything else you can buy.